Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We just finished a week in review of Vermont news. Now let's go to our friend Bob Nay, who is the best political analyst I know about all things Washington, D.C. Welcome, Bob, to the show. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, okay. I I don't think a lot of Americans and Vermonters spend a lot of time thinking about Houthi rebels in Yemen, and uh, yet the U.S. and British militaries bombed more than a dozen sites uh, used by this Iranian-backed uh, tribe. Give us the latest. I have tons of friends who call me and ask me who are the Houthis. I'm not a Houthi expert, but I can tell you this. They are Iranian-backed. There's a proxy war in the country of Yemen. On one side are the Iranians and the Houthis. And on the other side, with the militia of Yemen, is backed by Saudi Arabia. This has been going on for quite a few a few years. Now, there is a truce, by the way, in Yemen between the two groups. So I did want to mention that. Now, they're saying over in the Yemen area that this certain situation now with the Houthis and their attacks could hurt that truce within Yemen and then go back to a civil war. So the United States previously... Kevin, we've held back from striking because we didn't want to upend that truce in Yemen. We didn't want to trigger a wider problem. But the Houthis are launching the biggest barrages we've seen in a long time in, in, in a decade. And it's on with attack drones, and they're doing it with ships in the Red Sea. Now, why are they doing this? It's sort of a action against Israel, a protest to the Israel Hamas war. So we, in response, have struck their missile radar and their hopefully capacity for the drones. But I do want to stress, Kevin, the problem we've got, we and the British are involved in this. We're now you know, in a situation in the Red Sea where something could happen. We could get drug into you know, a larger conflict. And of course, into the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is taking place not on their soil, but on Yemen's soil. Okay, that's a lot to take in. Bob, mm-hmm. uh, okay, that, that explains why we're doing this, but can you uh, make the connection to the Israel-Hamas situation again? Well, the, the, the Houthis um, are attacking the ships and... The attacks increased since the war began between Israel and, and Hamas. Um, they've launched again these, you know, these missiles. But I think that it's basically a matter of, you know, philosophy. Uh, they're a country in Yemen in the Arab world, and I would also have to assume that the Iranians are basically prodding the Houthis, who they support financially, to do this. Uh, it disrupts the Red Sea. It disrupts shipments. It disrupts, you know, uh, products and goods. And so I would assume, Kevin, that the reason the Houthis are doing this is because the Iranians are prompting them to. Otherwise, I'm not so sure they would be just, you know, bombing 
ships with drones. Okay. Uh, and in, at the uh, International Court in The Hague, uh, the country of South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide, and Israel is defending itself. Take us to the world court and explain that situation. Well, and there's two things here. This is the world court, and it's the UN. Then, and they're, and they're both in The Hague, and then, of course, there's the famous International Court of The Hague, which uh, in itself right now, for example, has a warrant out for Putin. That's why he couldn't go to a, uh, an event in South Africa. But this is the U.N., which poses a larger problem. Israel has tended to ignore the international tribunal, but this one is a little bit different because this is U.N. So the decision made on this reverts back to New York, to the U.N., and then as an official proclamation, which the United States could block, but it would put us in a very precarious situation. So Israel is right now defending allegations. The allegations have been leveled by South Africa, uh, which is interesting because it was the apartheid state. And so now they're launching accusations against uh, Israel. I would say, Kevin, I don't want to diminish this this case. This is probably one of the biggest, largest, and significant cases that have has come before the world court in a long time. Now, the Israeli uh, have sent, and they've hired Dershowitz, I think, from the United States, the you know kind of famous lawyer, and they put together a team, and they're arguing that we were attacked first. They showed some video. But South Africa is arguing that even in self-defense, countries are required by international law to follow what we call the rules of war, if there are any, I guess. And they're asking the judges to decide if Israel has or not. Now, this could go on for years, but here's the significant part to kind of break this down. The high court of the U.N. could, within a week or two, say we're doing a temporary cease, halt, and desist order on Israel. Then it prompts back to the U.N. If the United States doesn't, you know, uh, veto that at the Security Council when it comes to the U.N., then Israel could face some problems which they don't want. That's why they're responding. They don't normally, as I said. And those problems could be sanctions, uh, and it could be worldwide by the U.N., which is, frankly, what brought down uh, the South Africa apartheid government. Right. Bob, let's go to Washington and talk about what's going on with the new Speaker of the House, uh, Mike Johnson, he faces he, uh, it's Groundhog Day here in uh, Congress. There's another revolt uh, by hard right Republicans against the speaker for his willingness to make a spending deal with Democrats in the House. This has huge implications for the election coming up. Why don't you take us through that? Well, it does. Based on the fact of 15 rounds for the first Speaker McCarthy, then you had another Speaker Scalise. He got thrown out before it began. Then you had another one. <laughs> they were thrown out before it began. Finally, it got to Johnson. And uh, he was sort of like, I guess you'd call it the kind of quiet compromise candidate. Most people didn't even know who he was. Uh, and then we had the temporary Speaker, Patrick McHenry. Now, the current Speaker, Mike Johnson, has cut a deal. He's cut a deal with the Senate. By the way, that doesn't just include Schumer. That brings in McConnell, the Republican. So I do want to mention that. Right. The right. deal he has cut 
with them brings in Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader in the House. So obviously, unless something goes really bad, the speaker is going to have the votes to do that. Now, for two reasons, the conservative Freedom Caucus, because it can be anywhere from 12 to 20 people. It's not the majority of the Republican House, Kevin, but the conservative caucus is extremely angry. They are threatening to do to him because they can just have one member do it. What Matt Gates did to Speaker McCarthy to throw him out. Now, if they do that, if they are successful, because here's where here's where it all breaks down to the deal that he's cut, which is to use the spending that they used last year. And that keeps the government open while they do the appropriation budget bills, which they're supposed to do anyway. They haven't done for 20 years, none of them, either party. So if they do that, they're going to have the votes. But here's the problem Johnson has, even with having the votes with the Democrats and the good majority of Republicans, if they want to, the 12 members very upset about this, one of them can make a motion and asked to vacate the seat. By the way, Santos was thrown out, as we know. He was expelled. My congressman from Ohio, Johnson, he quit. And so he's gone. So there's two more votes. Johnson doesn't have much to spare. Now, I think here's a bottom line. I'm pretty safe in saying if the congressman, for example, uh, Roy of Texas and others, If they get so angry that they make a motion to get rid of Johnson, I can just promise you if that happens and the fiasco occurs, what occurred the last couple of times trying to get a speaker, they might as well just call Hakeem Jeffries Speaker of the House because they will lose. This is January. They will lose control of the majority if they if they do this. And I would think that those angry at Johnson would know that. Bob, in 30 seconds that we have left, you've been, you were a member of Congress, you've been in these meetings behind closed doors. What's going, uh, you know, are they yelling at each other? Are they, are they uh, breaking bread? Are they calm? What, what's it like behind closed doors? Well, there's a few sitting in the back, very quiet, <laughs> as an obedient spouse <laughs> of sorts. Yeah. And, and there are, and they have them, by the way, I'll just give you the inside of this. They have a microphone. They have usually two or three set up, and there's, they're in a room, all of them. It's a large room. And you go up to the mic, and you stand behind each other, and it goes in order. First one at the mic, second, et cetera, and then there's the second mic. And then they, they say things, and it these meetings get ugly. Uh, hopefully, the ugliness occurs in these meetings, and it doesn't occur on the floor. I have been in meetings where you just sit there and you hold your breath. Uh, Yes, these meetings and this particular meeting got ugly and an Ohio congressman Republican stormed out and then made his five minutes in in the glory of the news saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to this dribble. And he walked out. So, yes, right now, these meetings are not a pleasant place to be for the speaker. Fascinating. Okay. well, as always, we'll get the latest from you on all things Washington. Bob Day. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Okay. Thank you. We're back. And we're joined by an old colleague of mine. She is now at Seven Days. Her name is Marianne Lichtig, and she's got a great story to talk to us about. Marianne, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Happy New Year. Nice to be with you. Happy New Year. So... Looks like Seven Days did a did a survey of all the um, 
all the corner stores uh, that are still around in Burlington and put it all together in a great story. Uh, a lot of my favorite places. Uh, take us through it. Thank you. Well, first of all, this is not all of the corner stores in Burlington. We have we an estimated 15 um, stores in Burlington. That was something that surprised me, I have to say. When I first moved here all those years ago, um, I had not seen a town that had so many little markets, and I was absolutely charmed by that. So what we set out to do was to do a sampling of them, and we happened to like the, the number seven at seven days. And so we featured seven of the community groceries in Burlington. And this was a group project. I would love to claim credit for the whole thing, but I cannot. Um, We split up the work and several of us set out to feature these stores. Um, And I personally wrote about two of them, which happened to be about a block apart. Um, This isn't even the only situation where the stores are maybe a block apart. My two are both on Archibald Street, uh, Dots Market and Deli, and J&M Groceries. And it was just so much fun to go hang out in these stores and talk to the people who run them and work in them and watch the customers come and go. You know, uh, and of course, we have these where I live in, in the Montpelier area. There's something about those places, and I'm thinking of Dots, which you wrote about, um, mm, yeah, uh, that, where if you spend Dots Market in Delhi on at 22 Archibald Street, if you if you hang out enough, you see the same people coming in and out at the same times every day. And it's beyond a store. It's really a community center, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they become. Um, we've used the headline before more than a market um, because that's what they are. Uh, They become places that are touchstones for the community. They knit the community together. They're anchors in their community. Um, A place like Dots, one of the women who works there, her name is Christina Pixley. She's worked there now for like 10 years. She was a customer at Dots when she was a kid. She went to school across the street at what's now Integrated Arts Academy. It was H.O. Wheeler. She used to come over to the store to buy candy there as a child. In fact, her mother called the owner to say, don't sell her any more penny candy. She had the supply cut off. Um, and now she works there and it's the same owner. You know, this, this woman, Lori Jarvis has owned the store with her brother, Paul, Lori runs it uh, since 1987. So they are, these are the ones we featured. They're all owned by families. Uh, some of them multi-generation. Bessery's, it's a third-generation owner, and Brian Bessery's daughter, Brian and Kelly Bessery's daughter, is also working in there, so fourth generation. So there's this institutional knowledge. It's a sense of looking out for the community, and you're right. You get people who come in at the same time every day. The, the clerks, it's so common. They know everyone. They know them. They know them by name. They know uh, their brand of cigarettes. They know... Uh, what they like and don't like. So uh, they, it's really they also, wonderful. They also, uh, I, there's a great line in your article uh, about dots where at 2.50 p.m., uh, the kids from the Integrated Arts Academy uh, tumble out of school and file uh, across the, across Walnut Street to dots. And you write, they tumbled in like turtles, backpacks strapped on, on like canvas shelves, and energy inside the old North End market instantly ratcheted up. 
Uh, I just love that scene. And they're all buying candy, aren't they? Yeah, they're buying candy. They're buying um, a lot of Arizona tea drinks. Uh, it's fun. Some of the stuff that was around when you and I were kids, Kevin, is still there. Laffy Taffy. Um, nerds maybe aren't quite as old as we are, but nerds have been yeah. around a long time. Um, chips, yeah. it's Dots makes lots of things in-house from scratch, but the kids aren't buying that stuff as a rule. Sometimes they'll buy a sandwich. Yeah. Um, they're going for the stuff that's prepackaged uh, that lasts forever. But it's just such a great scene because they are, they're so excited to be there. And some of my chatted with them, some of them had to earn their own money. Um, they come in and it's a place where they shop without a parent. Sometimes the younger ones have parents with them, but you know, this might be one of the first times that you walk up to a cash register and um, handle business yourself. So it's a, it was a right. really fun scene. I was charmed by them. Um, let's, I want to ask you a, a broader question. What happens? Uh, you probably talked to some of these uh, owners about the, the struggles uh, of being a local market when, you know, it's pretty easy to get in your car and drive to Williston and get whatever you want or Colchester and go to Costco these these markets serve a, a completely different purpose, but there's pressure on them. It's not they, you don't get rich running one of these markets. No, it's it's a challenge. And I asked Judy McLaurin, who owns J and M Groceries, and her parents owned it before she did. Um, John and Mildred, hence the J and M, said, "How do you compete? You know, how do you compete with these big stores? When when corner stores opened." There weren't grocery stores. That's that's they popped up on corners because people were less likely to have cars, maybe not even refrigerators back way back. Um, and so there was a demand and a real need and things have changed greatly. These corner stores can't buy in bulk. Uh, prices are high. And Judy at J&M, she recognizes that her prices are high. I watched her the first day I popped in there. When a woman came in for olive oil, and that's in my story, uh, she, Judy carries two brands, Food Club, and I won't say the other name right. It sounds it sounds Italian, Filippo Berrio, um, and the customer had asked for the Filippo Berrio oil, and Judy said, the, the, the note in her voice said, "Are you sure?" But her words were, "Those are seven ninety nine. Um, are you sure?" She said, "Do you want one of those and one of these?" Pointing to Food Club, which was like three dollars cheaper. And she recognizes that. And she looks out for her customers, even though she depends on customers spending money in her store to stay to stay in business. She can't stand to watch them spend too much. And she will encourage. She told me, she said, you can come in here and spend 50, 60 dollars. And she said, I like that, but I don't like that. She's like she knows that. Uh, their dollars will go farther in a grocery store. And she told me she'll direct people, you know, listen, you got you got a family to feed, for example. You got to go to the grocery store. But she supplies something that those stores don't in that she knows that community. She loves that community. Um, she's looking out for her community. Uh, she She's setting up this whole, she, her son is helping her. Um, she's calling it Judy's Treats. In the summertime, she's got a she's got a window set up that will slide open and close to sell creamies out of, and a whole host of um, slushies and other cold treats, smoothies, iced coffees, and she's doing it because she wants her neighbors to come out 
stand in line for a creamy and start talking to each other. She wants to make sure people know each other because she knows that builds a better neighborhood. So those are the sorts of things that, um, you know, you've got great people working at at uh, Price Chopper and Shaw's and Hannaford's, but these are the things these little stores do that the bigger ones can't. Well, You've got Erin Malone at Momo's also. You know, she's she runs a block party in the summertime, and she sponsored a turkey trot this fall, um, also doing things to very adamantly trying to be part of the community and build a community. She says uh, all of her employees live within a half mile of the store, which is just amazing. It's uh, it's really reassuring that this still exists. I wonder uh, in the time we have left, Marianne, the, 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 the demographics of the old North end have changed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of generalize it was an ethnic neighborhood, then it changed. It's, you know, the ethnicity of the neighborhood changes. What, what, there's new Americans there. What does the the demographic, what are the demographic changes in the neighborhood? What impact did they have on those stores, if any? Well, I think that the stores now, traditionally way back that all these, the different people who moved into Burlington, these were very much, um, neighborhood markets for the the new americans when they came in um canadian italian lithuanian uh the much of the old north end used to be called little jerusalem it was a jewish neighborhood and that was reflected in the owners dots was once owned by the Greenblatt family for example um now as demographics change um we have nepalis and vietnamese and African immigrants, and they're setting up stores. There's a halal store. Thai fat's been around quite a while, um, primarily Vietnamese, I believe, but I might be misspeaking there. I did not write that one and not all that fluent in their history. But what they serve then is it's a, a familiar place, familiar faces, familiar foods for people from these cultures because they're uh, bringing in, they make a point to bring in the food um, that people want to cook the recipes from their homes. So they are um, gathering places for new Americans and places that also help them retain their culture um, and feel just a little bit more at home when they're living far from home. And here's the, the, market, here's the kicker. Yeah. Here's the kicker. We've got to patronize these places because losing mm-hmm. these community markets uh, diminishes us all. So, uh, Marianne Lichtenberg, as always. I agree. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Always a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Okay. That's Marianne Lichtenberg. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk books with Mary Bisbee Beak. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we're now going to turn to books. As you know, we love books on this show, and we promote them relentlessly. And we are to do that, we are joined by my friend, the publishing Sherpa, Mary Bisbee Beak. Mary, welcome back. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Well, I'm good, thanks. Um, I'm, I'm looking over your recommendations for this week, and I, I think I need to warn the audience that we've got uh, we've got 
you as a fiction lover and me as a nonfiction lover. So I think we can cover the the gamut. They they probably won't get a lot of uh, romance novels or children's uh, books recommendations, but we can we can deal with that down the road. Well, I try and you know I try and be an equal opportunity um, uh, reader, but I have to say over the holidays um, I was gifted with a large number of fiction books, and I'm still working through the pile, um, and that's why I thought I would add some of those to today's chat. Um, and then I have a list that <laughs> I, I thought about just reading the list and not talking about individual books, but that wouldn't be fair. Right. Although it might, okay. it might make the people happy at, at, um, at, at the local independent bookstores. Right. Okay. Well, start us off. Um, what's what's oh, okay. on your list? What's going on? Well, you know, I like books that aren't new and um, are generally fairly unsung. So my friends are always on the lookout for me. And the first one is um, called The Icarus Boy uh, by Bill Regan, who is, um, oh, I just have to say, everybody today is um, is a, a started as a New Englander. Um, there's one author who writes from Seattle, but Bill Regan, uh, who wrote The Icarus Boy, lives in Massachusetts. And um, his book is my favorite kind of diversion. It's a mystery thriller. And this one stars former police detective Nick McGill. And when a phone call pulls him from his new life as an artist into a race to save a troubled college kid, McGill must try to find a monstrous killer who leaves a trail of victims from Boston to Cape Cod. During the chase, McGill is forced to revisit his own childhood a peripatetic home life, the past trauma of his police work, and the betrayal of the love of his life. In the chase, the protagonist discovers that the first person he must save is himself. I have to say that this is generally the kind of book that I read on the beach. It's it's quick. It's, um, it's quick to read. It's a very fast-paced in how you read it. Um, but I found it very compelling on an extremely rainy day. And, you know, I felt like I had accomplished something at the end of the day because I had finished the book. Um, the second book is The Good Side of Bad by Beverly Oliven. Um, and she writes from Seattle. Um, and this first came to my attention, actually, when I heard about the film of the same name. And sure enough, the film was clo- was fairly closely adapted from the novel. Um, but as many of these projects go, I have to say I enjoyed the book much more than I did the film. Um, I mentioned this to a friend, and she went and she did an extensive search um, to find me the book, which I was extremely um, thankful for. And um, so this is dead serious subject matter that's told in a quirky and page-turning way. The story moves between Seattle and New York, and it's told through three through the voices of three siblings. Florence, the youngest, needs help. It's 2008, and the economic crisis is winning. To prove that Florence, to prove that Florence jumps off a bridge. Now it's her siblings, Peter and Sarah's turn to figure out how to show up for Florence, while also taking care of themselves. 
face their own crises and the tangled ties of family. The mysterious world of mental illness, corruption, and greed of financial markets. None, none of these are a laughing matter, but the author threads the needle with this humorous and moving journey towards compassion and the other side of loss. Mm. And then, and then the third book is by um, Jacqueline Sheehan, who lives down in the Pioneer Valley, and um, it's called Lost and Found. And um, the main protagonist's name is Rocky, and uh, Rocky loses the love of her life, and she flees to Peaks Island, a tiny speck off the coast of Maine. Well, they had me right there when I, you know, when I first read the back cover of the book. It's a million miles away from everything and she's everything that she's lost. Taking a job as an animal warden, Rocky meets Lloyd, a large Labrador retriever who enters her world with a primitive arrow sticking out of his shoulder. And so begins a remarkable friendship between a wounded woman and an injured, lovable beast. I don't want to give too much away. It's easy to do with this book, but it's a wonderful read. And Kevin, I'd love to hear what you read. I'm sure you'll oh, well, take us back to the serious side of things. Well, I, before we do me, I want to ask you about, uh, well, first of all, Peaks Island. I have a couple of friends there, uh, one from Montpelier who actually moved there, and uh, and then another old friend. And you're right, that has me, as soon as I saw Peaks Island, uh, I need to read that book. But let me ask you about your opinion about books versus movies. That's a... Mm. A lot, of, a lot of people say that, that, you know, I much prefer the book. Um, and it sure is easy to go to Netflix and click on watching the movie. But why, why are the books better than movies? I find, I find that there's more detail in the words than necessarily in the visuals. Um, Generally, what I like to do is I, I like to go in with an open mind, but to try not to focus on the story that's in my mind if I've read the book first um, and just to go in and be entertained by the movie, yeah. um, whether it's, you know, serious or sad or whatever. It's um, I try and treat them as two, the two genres that they are. And I think a lot of, you know, I have a couple of friends who refuse to see the movie if they've read the book. And um, I don't think that's entirely fair. But lots of times I come out feeling like, oh, but it could have been so much more because in the book they did X, Y, or Z. And, you know, it's just I'm thinking about um, all the light we cannot see. This is the most recent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. book to movie connection I've, I've, um, I've seen. And it's, um, the movie was just, it just wasn't there, but the book was lyrical and it was filled, fill, it filled you with wonder and it, it made you want to, it, it just put you in the place where I didn't feel that way with the movie. Now, maybe it was because it was a movie made for TV. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or maybe it was because I saw it on the laptop and I didn't see it on big screen. Yeah. Um, but it just there's frequently there's something missing a little bit. Well, 
Yeah, I'm I'm married to a person like that who doesn't like to go see the movie uh, and prefers to keep the book, the scenes of the book in her head. Uh, but uh, I, I like doing both. Um, but OK, but I let's will, turn to. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say I will say that I have sold movie rights for people's books. And it's such a laborious process that I feel that I need to go and um pay attention to the just to the people who've crafted this movie um, because yeah. it, it's an amazing process and it takes yeah. years and it takes millions of dollars. And, and I just, you know, I feel like, you know, they, they need a bow. They, they need a little applause too. So I, you know, I, I try and give equal opportunity to the, to the artists involved. Okay. okay. Now let's talk about your book. Uh, well, there's a tall pile. Uh, I, re- I got the mm. Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, which I, I read again. Um, I've fa- always been fascinated by Steve Jobs. But the one that really uh, got me was a book called 13 Days in September. It is by Lawrence Wright, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Looming Tower, which is basically the story of the fighting, uh, the lead up to 9-11 and the fighting between the FBI and the CIA. Uh, It it was turned into a, I think, a bad uh, TV series, uh, miniseries with uh, the guy, Michigan actor who plays the guitar. uh, Oh, I know who you mean. Jeff... uh, Jeff somebody, um, and Alec Baldwin. Jeff Daniels. C- yeah, Jeff Daniels, and Alec Baldwin plays the CIA director. Um, but this is the story, the dramatic story of the peace deal at Camp David between uh, engineered by then-President Jimmy Carter and uh, who dragged uh, Israel's President Menachem Begin and Egypt's president, Anwar Sadat, to Camp David for 13 days. And you would think that this could not be dramatic, but oh my heavens, it is really something. Uh, you know, they're they're out at Camp David, so they're taking walks. Jimmy Carter's riding around uh, on his bicycle uh, from from cabin to cabin. There's even one point where Carter gives up on day 11 in forging a peace deal between the Egyptians and the Israelis. And he starts, he ignores the two presidents and starts kind of going behind their backs and negotiating directly with um, their aides. And, you know, it's just a story of the story that we're seeing playing out today, which is deep, deep cultural and religious beliefs uh, and deep hatreds and distrust Uh, And when you bring people together away from the TV cameras, there was no press allowed. Um, You know, you have the possibility of breaking through some of those cultural and religious barriers and forging relationships that can lead to a realization that war is not the answer. And um, anyway, it's... It was good. It was good to go back. I'd go back a lot and try to educate myself about this Israeli Hamas thing, which 
And there's just the rabbit hole just gets deeper and deeper. You just have to keep going back another hundred years, another hundred years. But it's a great book. I recommend it highly. It's now on my list. It sounds fantastic. And it sounds gripping, you know. Yeah, it's it's gripping. I I mean, you know, President of the United States literally went away from Washington for 13 days uh, hold up at Camp David and didn't go back to the White House. Now, Roslyn, his, his just uh, his late wife, who's just we just deceased, um, she would go back and forth to Washington, but she would then helicopter. You know, she'd go back to the White House but for an event, but then she'd helicopter back, and she played a major role in, uh, in the peace deal. And, you know, Carter's still alive. Uh, and then, of course, Sadat was uh, assassinated shortly after by extremist elements within within that country, and and then the you know then 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 there was the Bill Clinton peace deal at the White House, and of course Yitzhak Rabin, the guy who finally shook hands with Yasser Arafat, he was assassinated, and there was a deal on the table uh, to give the Palestinians their their homeland, and Yasser Arafat could not make that deal, and here we are. Uh, so it's a yeah. great if you're look if you're looking to educate yourself about the roots of this war. Uh, this book, Thirteen Days in September, is a good place to start. Well, that's great. I think that if we want to get down to the roots, though, we have to go back even further. But um, you know, yeah. I well remember I was in high school when this Camp David uh, uh, conversation was going on, and. Um, and I remember even that was gripping, getting the San Francisco Chronicle every morning and, you know, checking in on what was new about it. And um, at, at one point, a few years later, leaving work to take a lunch break. And when I came back, there was a colleague walking down the street and she was weeping. And I said, you know, what's the matter? And she said that Sadat had been assassinated. And she said, you know, this is just terrible for the Middle East. And. You know, I remember going back thinking, look, look, looking back through papers and, you know, doing some revision about, you know, what had happened during those peace talks and realizing that you know, she was right. This was a real problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, Mary Bisbee Beek, as always, thank you for coming on the show and reviewing books. And we'll have you on again next month. We'll uh, we'll keep. We'll keep uh, publishing and books and bookstores alive, thanks to you and others. Good to have you. Okay, we'll keep keep reading, everyone. <laughs> Mary Bisbee Beek, the publishing Sherpa. Uh, she's I I don't know anybody who has more knowledge of books and publishing than her, and I just love having her on the show. Welcome back. Uh, that was a great segment with Mary Bisbee Beek talking about books. I was glad to get uh, get my recommendation in there. This this book, 13 Days in September, about the Israeli-Egyptian uh, peace deal back in Jimmy Carter's days uh, in the late 70s, it's really a page turn. But we have, in the, in the couple of minutes we have before we have to go, let's take a couple of calls. You can join me at 244-1777. And we have Kathleen from the Adirondacks. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mr. Ellis. And I also want to say I think you're one of the best hosts. You're so personable. I always make sure I tune in on the days you 
do the show. <laughs> um, I wait, well, wait a minute. You got to tell us where where in the Adirondacks. I'm in a little town called Olmsteadville. It's um, I see the mailman maybe. That's it. For ten, unless I go to the grocery store, which is 45 minutes away for a loaf of bread. <laughs> but my <laughs> husband um, retired at 70, and and we moved to the. Which is cute. It's a nice house. It's cute. It's small, but it's very remote. So I listen to your radio it. all the time. And very clear here, and it's my best friend out. It really is. Oh, oh <laughs> fantastic! Thank you for joining us. What's on your mind? Thank you so much. I'm um, the best book I read during power outages because we don't have a big generator. <laughs> the best book I've ever read um, in my life is The Hours. It was written by Michael Cunningham and Nicole in their city, which is not disappointing. Nicole Kidman plays Virginia Woolf. And Meryl Streep, main character, and Meryl Streep movies, I'm sure you have, she can form into anyone so believably, so perfectly. So uh, The Hour of Michael Cunningham is is fantastic, and I recommend it to anyone. It's it's not a tough read. I mean, you have to go back and forth in different errors, but it's, it's a book, and it is I thought just as it just as great. Oh, fantastic! Well, Kathleen, uh, thank you for calling and thanks for coming on the show. What are you reading now? I'm not. I haven't had a power outage in a while. I mean, I do everything. I make bread from scratch. I wash clothes at home, like by hand, and hang them on the line. Even in the winter, I just have. I shouldn't say that there are there are not anti hunters hunters out there, but we eat the venison. We need it. You know, we need it. We're yeah. very limited income, and so we we live off the land in a very primitive way. So um, I haven't been reading Mrs. Dalloway. I'm reading Mrs. Dalloway. I'm fascinated with Virginia Woolf. I'm fascinated with her and her story Fantastic. and her history right. and her childhood. So I'm reading Mrs. Dalloway right now. Fantastic. Okay. Well. <laughs> Batten down that batten down the hatches. Uh, we're 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 bracing for some big weather over here in Vermont. So I don't know if you're going to get it over there, but uh, yes, I've uh, heard we are. And there's so many trees wrapped around us that power outages are a a common thing. So we're ready. We we only heat okay. with wood only. So that's it. So we're ready. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. We'll fire fire up the wood stove and stay safe. And uh, we'll we'll see you again. Thank you for calling in. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Well, isn't that funny? God, I, I I have never heard of that town where she lives, but um, but it's somewhere in the Adirondack Park, and it's it can be remote up there. But uh, he's going to pack the wood stove and uh, hang the hanging the clothes out on the clothesline in winter. Uh, I've been known to do that myself in East Montpelier, but um, not a lot of people are doing that these days. I remember that Senator Dick McCormick used to have a bill. Uh, I think it passed actually in the Vermont legislature to uh, to allow for the right to to dry your clothes on a line because condo associations were banning them. Okay, that's our show for today. 
Thanks to our guests, Bob Nay, Mary Ann Lichtig, Joanna Grossman, Mary Bisbee Beek, Congresswoman Becca Ballant. Be sure to follow all those people online. They're doing great stuff. Read their stuff, buy their stuff, patronize the stores that Mary Ann wrote about. Uh, because if we lose them, uh, we lose uh, uh, the heart of the community. Remember to join me Wednesday for more guests and more subjects that will challenge us and make us smarter. Send me your suggestions on Twitter or email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is always to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. Remember, you can stream the show live or later as a podcast at WDEV Radio anytime, anywhere. doesn't matter where you live. You can find me at kevinkellis.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. Our show is produced by me, engineered, and made possible by Brent Curtis, Danny McGivigan, Lee Cattell, Greg Titus, and all the folks at WDEV, including Steve Cormier, the uh, station director. My thanks also to the team at KWMR here in Community, community Radio in Point Reyes Station, California, where I'm broadcasting for a, few, a, a little bit longer. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond. Wherever you are, join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.